Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 46 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. We've um, switched to Hugh Hefner roles again this week and have been off an ongoing off-air theme. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm owning it. Come at me. Come at me. <laughs> Winter's looking a little different this year. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, we have quite a few Patreon shout-outs this week, Chloe. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Brianna Kent, Bryony Ryan, Fiona Griffin, Penelope McDonald, Mandy Squires, Kim Rutherford, Eloise Soden, Lorio, Jodie Barber, Emma Wilkinson, Paula Randolph and Leanne Stones. And we also ran a competition on our Facebook page and our Patreon this week and just wanted to give a shout out to some of the winners. You went rogue and um, gave away some after I did, but the ones that I picked and that we agreed on to start with, um, congrats to Steve Clements and Susan Judd. You guys have been awesome supporters and thanks for being a part of it. And who else, Sean? Yes, thank you. We appreciate that, guys. Yeah, I did go rogue. You're right, Clove. It's uh, it's the dressing gown. It must be. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, the entries, like you said, were just uh, so awesome and, you know, I can... Uh I can give away my own merch if I want to. So, <laughs> <laughs> now the congrats as well to um uh, was uh, Pav uh, Lianikov, Lisa Borg, and Kimberly Folk Rutherford. So, um, yeah, pretty good stuff, and we will get all of that out to you as soon as we can. And also on our Patreon, the winners there of some T-shirts were Kate Eason and Tom Linford. So yeah, thanks everyone for being part of the giveaway. It was awesome to read your entries and get a glimpse into your lives because everyone shared where they normally listen. So it was really cool for us to look at. Yes, it was. Good to get a little glimpse into our our listeners' lives. So thank you for that, guys. Uh, We also had to correct the um, pronunciation of Elisa's name too. It was, uh, I think we said Cupid and it was Cupid. Yes, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Cupid like the angel. Like the angel, exactly, (laughs) which I'm sure she is um, listening to our podcast (laughs) in particular. So thank you very much for your support, uh, Elise, and everyone else. So today, Chloe, we're talking about three different cases, actually, murders, all revolving around ice cream, the tasty, frozen, creamy treat. Ice cream is a favourite snack or dessert for many of us, 
And it's been that way for a long time. You know, there's tales all the way back from sort of the BC, AD times, you know, Romans and Persians crafting ice-based snacks. We uh, we won't go sort of back that far when we're, when we're setting the scene here, but, you know, modern day it was actually a woman named uh, Agnes Marshall who was known as the Queen of Ices who really brought ice cream recipes to the forefront, I suppose you'd say, of, of the community and made it a, a bit of a trendy consumable. She was way ahead of her time, this lady. She even suggested using liquid nitrogen to make ice cream. So that's well before, you know, Heston Blumenthal was even a dirty thought. So uh, Agnes's cookery book was published in 1888 and it really promoted and popularised the serving of ice creams in cones. And she even went on to create ice cream makers too. And there's another interesting tale about the newfound popularity of ice cream cones around this time which supposedly took place at the St. Louis World's Fair in uh, 1904. As legend has it, an ice cream salesman at the fair ran out of his little cardboard receptacles that he was serving the ice cream in, and the vendor next to him, who was a a Syrian waffle booth, he'd barely sold anything all day, being a, a warm summer's day, he creatively made cones up for the ice creams by rolling up his waffles, and it was such a, a hit that it was widely copied thereafter. Into the late 1900s, and we'd see the rise of premium, thicker ice cream varieties. Uh, they'd be gaining popularity, the likes of Ben & Jerry's, Haagen-Dazs, you know, Nestle. The game changer would come in when uh, soft-serve ice cream came into the fold, ice cream which really effectively just had more air mixed into it, uh, which reduced costs and made it easier to eat. Dairy Queen would be a big name popularising the soft serve. In Australia, we had the premium ice cream brands like Buller, Peters, Streets, uh, who would make many of the famous ice creams that we know and love now, you know, the Cornetto, Magnum, Splice, and of course, everyone's favourite, the Golden Gay Time. Mr Whippy would spearhead our country's foray into the world of ice cream vans or ice cream trucks, as they were referred to in the US, The brand would start up in Australia in 1962 and New Zealand in 1964 and became ingrained in our culture as a a popular presence during our hot summers around this time. You know, these trucks and vans sort of cruising the neighbourhoods with a whimsical melody playing over a crackly speaker. Green sleeves, I usually hear, and that's what I think of when I think of that music. And to this day, you know, there's still many ice cream vans running their own independent operations here in Australia. But unlike the upbeat, suggestive music we hear when the brightly coloured van rolls into the neighbourhood, it's not always good times and double headers for those in the ice cream business. And we're going to kick things off with a very recent example of that. January 2019, Edwards Lake Park, Reservoir, Victoria. Rebecca Mavrikis was selling ice cream at this location when she was approached by another ice cream truck vendor. She asked Rebecca if she had a permit to operate in the area. Nothing more came of the interaction and the bubbling turf war simmered until the following months when this vendor noticed Rebecca again serving ice creams in the same location. 
Clearly angered by the encroaching on her turf, the vendor proceeded to take photos of Rebecca and her van. But Rebecca didn't like that. She became enraged, charged at the vendor, snatched her phone and began to violently shake her back and forth. Rebecca Mavrikas sought an intervention order against the persistent vendor thereafter, but was ordered to subsequently pay a fine of $500 for the assault. So this ice cream turf war was a minor one. I saw the article on this recently and it's really what prompted me to look into an episode of this nature. Not all ice cream turf wars end with this lack of crescendo, however. Sometimes they have much more dire conclusions. 5th of February 2002. Dennis Giunta had just returned to his home in Williamstown after a day's work. He'd showered and was walking naked towards his bed to hop under the covers with his wife, Laura, when he felt a presence in the room with them. Lying in wait for what must have been some time, a masked, sword-wielding intruder leapt from the shadows and began hacking into Dennis. Blood sprayed across the room as Laura looked on terrified from the bed, and Dennis tried hopelessly to defend himself with his bare hands. But bare hands were no match for a sword, even a makeshift homemade sword like the one this intruder had. Despite Dennis's pleas to the intruder, you know, take what you want, leave us alone, don't hurt us, the masked madman didn't waver from his attack. He cut Dennis down in his prime, the young man later passing away from his injuries, 55 of which were later recorded to his chest, head and abdomen. The massive blood loss and collapsed lungs were just too much for Dennis to survive. Laura, meanwhile, awakened by the skirmish in her own bedroom, got a look at her dying husband and the masked assailant and quickly realised she was probably next. Amidst the screams, her own included, Laura managed to escape from the room through the doors which led out onto her balcony. As she yelled out for help, fearing for her husband's life, she climbed from the balcony onto the roof of their garage and then jumped down onto the bonnet of the family car. She was able to escape and get help, but not without injury. She suffered a compound fracture in her ankle and a cracked vertebrae, hospitalising her for nearly a month and confining her to a wheelchair for a further two months. So an absolutely terrifying attack here, Chloe. Probably one that would be most people's worst nightmare, I reckon. Home at the end of a long day, winding down after a shower, maybe getting the kids off to bed or the animals fed, whatever. And in the private sanctuary of your own bedroom, there's a murderous intruder lying in wait. Absolutely terrifying. And sadly, in this tale... Dennis Junta died from the massive injuries he sustained, as we said, and his wife Laura would not only have to endure his loss, but her own injuries would take over 12 months to fully heal, with her still needing crutches occasionally or a walking stick. The police investigation into Dennis's murder would yield some fairly quick results, however, with the aforementioned sword being found in the garden of a neighbouring property in Williamstown. A glove was also located at the murder scene, and luckily, as we're talking 2002 here, DNA testing was able to yield some speedy results, which pointed police in the direction of a man named Francesco Mangione. Francesco was Dennis's cousin, actually, but the Mangione and Giunta families, despite their ties, had some bitter feuds going on over the past decade. 
1993, a dispute arose between Francesco and Dennis's father. Both of the men operated ice cream vans and their disagreement was over their turf, their individual territories in which they were allowed to operate. Similar to the opening scenario we spoke of, Chloe, but obviously it turned out to be much more violent. Mr. Giunta, that's Dennis's father, I think it's Peter his name, ended up injuring Francesco's mother at one stage, and Francesco and the younger Dennis ended up throwing hands over the disagreement. A brief attempt at reconciliation afterwards failed. The two families remain bitter ice cream enemies since that time. Dennis worked very little for his father, Peter, but clearly enough to anger Francesco. He was ultimately charged with his cousin Dennis's murder, the ice cream turf wars being the primary motive for the attack. Francesco was born in Sicily on the 23rd of July 1953. He came to Australia with his parents in 1969, attending East Altona Primary and Altona North Tech thereafter. He'd go on to complete his electrical apprenticeship, working for the State Electricity Commission, until being made redundant due to the closing of the radio section he was working within in 1989. 32 by this time, with four kids to his wife, Francesco's marriage would eventually deteriorate and end, and while living back with his parents in Mooney Ponds, he'd strike up a new relationship with a lady named Kathy Wang. Around this time, Francesco began selling ice creams from a van, soft-serve double-headers and waffle cones for the masses, humming around the neighbourhood with a pleasant disposition in a brightly coloured truck promising ice-cold happiness. But beneath the surface, that happiness was nothing more than ice-cold contempt for the Juinta family, who Francesco felt were encroaching on his turf. This sparked a turf war, which would end in Francesco creeping into his cousin's house and murdering him in cold blood during the evening of February 5th, 2002. This all seemed very strange. Francesco, by all accounts, was a good father, a good son. He'd done well with his ice cream business. He wasn't into alcohol, drugs or gambling. This seemed to be a complete overreaction. Francesco, right up until and throughout his trial, continued to profess his innocence, stating he'd not killed his cousin Dennis. The problem was DNA evidence found on the sword, on a glove left at the home, and in his car all connected him, making it 10 million times more likely that these DNA profiles obtained were from him and Dennis compared with Dennis and some other random Caucasian male. So no admission and no remorse from Francesco. His trial went for 10 days, and on the 13th of February 2004, he was found guilty of murdering his cousin, Dennis Giunta. He received 22 years with an 18-year non-parole period, which by my maths, Chloe, would make Francesco eligible for parole this year at some stage, if not already. Peter Giunta, Dennis's father, cried in court, describing his and other family members' actions as shameful, clearly distraught over the death of his son. He recalled Francesco's father being present at one of the altercations, remembering him looking down at the ground and saying, why do you argue for bloody ice cream? So the Mr Whippy style ice cream van turf war had led to a horrible death in this first case, Chloe. 
two families of Italian heritage clashing over territories ended up having very dire consequences. And in this second case, we're going to keep the Italian theme going as we start out with the traditional and popular Italian dessert, gelato. Gelaterias are commonplace in Italy and within pockets of Italian communities here in Australia too. Gelato is made from whole milk, sugar, sometimes egg and natural flavourings and typically contains a few percent less fat than ice cream. And you can tell that when you're eating it right, it usually has that sort of crisp, fresh flavouring, but generally much lighter, less creamy. On March the 15th, 2016, at the Jello Bar in Ligon Street, East Brunswick, owner Joseph Aquaro had closed up his business for the night and was walking towards his parked vehicle, his Mercedes, when he was callously gunned down. But Joe Aquaro wasn't just a humble gelateria owner. He was a businessman and lawyer who defended the mafia. This morning, Joseph Aquaro might have become the next chapter in Melbourne's long-running underworld war, gunned down in cold blood. Uh, It does appear to be targeted. Pino, to his friends, was shot dead in a precise ambush. It's understood the 55-year-old had just closed his Ligon Street cafe and was walking back to his black Mercedes. I've got staff crying in my office. As I said, we've known the guy our whole life. His bloodied body was discovered by council workers around 2.30am. I heard three or four shots. It's been reported that Mr Aquaro had a $200,000 bounty on his head but ignored warnings about his safety from police. The father of three had represented some well-known gangland and Calabrian crime figures, including convicted drug trafficker Francesco Modaffri. He's suffering from a severe case of depression. More recently, he defended underworld figure and Carl Williams associate Rocco Orico. Look, it's always a concern when... Um someone's uh, meets their uh, death like this in a public place. Peter was a top bloke, a very, very good man, very well respected. In January, his restaurant Jello Bar was targeted by an arsonist, but his employees refused to be drawn on any links today. I don't know nothing. Residents here in St Philip Street say they heard a car shortly after hearing the shots fired. This quiet street ideal for a getaway, avoiding the many cameras and witnesses on busy Ligon Street. Possible clues were left behind. Forensic police discovered a balaclava in the garbage truck and a smashed phone was also found. Trent Dan, 10 Eyewitness News. Joe's body was found by a garbage truck driver around 3am. And as we and the clip mentioned, Joe was a well-known criminal defence attorney, having represented well-known Melbourne underworld identities, including Francesco Mataferi, Rocco Orico, Pascal Barbaro, Mario Condello and Alphonse Gangitano. So he had a bit of a reputation, but in recent times, Joe had taken a step back from his legal work and had been focusing on running the Jello bar with his family. The 54-year-old father of three had been trying to put his past behind him in that sense, but it was suggested fairly quickly, leading police down a dark path, that there was a contract out on Joe's life for the tune of a quarter of a million dollars. And this was due to the rumours, not founded at the time, but have since been confirmed, that Joe Aquaro, alongside the likes of lawyer ex Nicola Gobbo, was one of eight members of Melbourne's legal fraternity who became police informants. Now that would have gone down like a lead balloon within that community, and it was an obvious first line of inquiry for police, which makes complete sense on a surface level. But boiling down Joe Aquaro, who was said by those who knew him to be a you know a gentleman and a great bloke, um, to be simply an underworld associate would have been narrow-minded. And the police certainly didn't do that in this instance. 
as we said, Joe had been looking to step back from his legal work for some time and focus on Jello Bar. And at this time, he was actually renovating the business. This was alongside many of his other community-minded pursuits. He was a, a past president of the Italian Chamber of Commerce, a passionate advocate of Calabrian culture, and he was strongly involved uh, with Parkville's Reggio Calabria Club, and he also assisted disadvantaged members of Melbourne's Calabrian community. And while the media buzzed around the potential for Melbourne's underworld killings to have started up again, police began looking into Joe's seemingly quite busy life and the renovation side of his life would yield some interesting information. Police had CCTV of someone who appeared to be casing the Jello Bar business on the night of Joe's murder, and it'd be theorised that there was actually CCTV from the surrounding area which showed the actual murder, if not part of it. And inquiries leading to this man's identification would lead back to one of the tradesmen who Joe had engaged to do some work for him at Jello Bar in recent times. The man in question was alleged by Joe to have actually lit a blaze at Jello Bar just a couple of months earlier, causing damage worth around about $150,000. Perhaps he was angling for more work, this bloke. Whatever the case, it put people's lives in danger, which angered Joe greatly. He was allegedly seen punching this labourer in the stomach and slapping him in the face in the time after this blaze. So this guy had a clear motive, it would seem. And it would appear a month later he'd gotten his own form of twisted revenge on the lawyer-turned-ice-cream vendor. There's been a breakthrough in the murder of Melbourne Mafia lawyer Joseph Aquaro. Let's go live to crime reporter Alexis Deitch. Lexi, who's been arrested? Pete's name is Vincenzo Krupi. He's a Calabrian-born 69-year-old from Reservoir and detectives from the Homicide Squad swooped on him just before 10 o'clock this morning after what's been a very high-profile two-and-a-half-year-long investigation. Now, his alleged victim was Melbourne Mafia lawyer Joseph Aquaro and he represented several well-known gangland, gangland figures in Melbourne. But one night in March 2016, he was closing up Jello Bar here in Ligon Street. He was walking to his car and that is when police allege Vincenzo gunned him down, shooting shot him dead and left him in the street. Now, in terms of how these two knew each other, well, there are reports that Vincenzo was working as a labourer at Jello Bar, helping out with some renovations, and that they may have known each other through Melbourne's Italian community. Today in court, Vincenzo chose not to appear in the actual courtroom when he formally faced one count of murder, but the court did hear that he needed to see doctors as a matter of urgency, and also that CCTV footage will be used as evidence in the case against him. Now, Vincenzo was remanded in custody to front court again in March next year. But as you said, Pete, this is one massive breakthrough in a very high-profile Melbourne case. Back to you. So this Vincenzo Krupi, Chloe, he looks a little bit like um, Wormtail, Peter Pettigrew from Harry Potter. You know that guy? Yeah. Yeah. We'll post some pics on our socials, as we always do, so you can see. But yes, very dishevelled and and sort of wizard-like, this bloke. So the facts, Vincenzo was a 70-year-old man a volunteer labourer at Jello Bar who'd been doing some work for Joe in return for food and drink. And in the weeks after this fire, it was alleged by Joe that Vincenzo's car had been on CCTV on the night of the fire and that he'd lit the blaze out of being disgruntled for not being paid $500 at some point. Chefs at the Jello Bar witnessed the slapping incident where apparently Vincenzo apologised to Joe after denying he lit the fire and confirmed that he was out of line and that Joe didn't actually owe him any money. So this run-in appeared to have angered Vincenzo deep down, however, cut him deep. 
to the point that he'd shot Joe dead as he left Jello Bar, heading back to his car in the early hours of uh, March 15, 2016. And this was despite Joe having helped him not only with food and drink during completing these works, but apparently he'd given Vincenzo $1,000 too when the older man asked for some money. A second request for money by Vincenzo was met with a firm no from Joe, and looking at the way the older man reacted, it may have led to him lighting that blaze we mentioned earlier. Police did investigate the underworld angle thoroughly, however, prior to arresting and charging Vincenzo Krupi. Many reports from associates indicated Joe had been concerned about people being out to get him. But in the end, it appears, despite his years of defending some of Melbourne's most well-known crooks, it may have been a disgruntled labourer who enjoyed probably quite a bit of Joe's gelati, who was ultimately responsible for his ice-cold murder. From the latest updates, it appears Vincenzo Krupi is still yet to stand trial for the murder. That takes some time, as we know, particularly with the current climate and halting of many legal proceedings. But as far as Joe Aquaro's dreams of slowly exiting the legal profession to spend more time with his family and pursue his passion with Jello Bar, well, that was unfortunately cut short with his untimely death. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. And finally, Chloe, we get to case number three in our ice cream themed episode today. But in contrast to the sweet, icy cold, creamy treat that many of us love, this last case is going to get a whole lot more bitter and dark. We're going to mix things up a bit and take a quick trip in the True Blue boat, moving from Ligon Street, Little Italy in Melbourne, over to Italy itself. It'd be here in the town of Udine on the 10th of June 2011 that police would swoop and arrest 32-year-old Estabiliz Carranza, the owner of an ice cream bar called Schleckeria in Vienna, Austria. She'd recently fled to Italy and was found by authorities living with a street musician before being captured and extradited back to her home in Vienna to face charges and a subsequent trial. But Chloe, what had this lady done to warrant an international hunt for her in bordering countries? Well, 
much more than busting out a few rum and raisin waffle cones at the Schleck area. The building where Estabellis ran her ice cream parlour was some 50 years old. It had been opened at the time by a husband and wife who earned a crust selling sweets, but over the years it had become dilapidated since Sister Ballas had started her business. As with anything that's left to go into disrepair, the building started having things go wrong, with some pipes eventually bursting and requiring some plumbing contractors to come and complete repairs. Esther Beliz, who was educated in business, knew the place needed repairs, but seemed hesitant to have any completed unless absolutely necessary, and it had turned out she had good reason for this. When the plumbing contractors arrived and went down into the basement to begin their job, they noticed some rather odd, uneven patches of concrete on the floor. Strange, but not enough to stop them from doing their work. The plumbers began digging until their shovels hit something metallic. And it was around this time their eyebrows raised and further digging uncovered a freezer. And inside, there was a grisly find far worse than any bog-clogged drain. And it was the remains of two dismembered men. Pretty quickly, the contractors called police and Estabelez fled to Italy shortly thereafter. The question was, who were these two men? That question was quickly answered when it became apparent that her former husband, Holger Holtz, and most recent boyfriend, Manfred Hintenberger, had not been seen for some time. Two years for Holger, actually, which was a long time indeed, but a few months for Manfred. But who was Estabelez Carranza and what had led to these pair of bodies, her ex-husband and former boyfriend, being stored beneath concrete in a freezer under the basement of her ice cream parlour? Estabelez was an intelligent child who was born in Mexico but moved to Spain when she was young. She graduated school with honours and went on to finish college before moving to Germany, mastering the language in just three months. She met Holger Holtz in Germany when she was working as an au pair before they moved to Vienna and she bought the ice cream parlour. But like many relationships, things deteriorated between the pair and eventually they divorced. But Holger refused to move out of their home after this and instead of leaving herself, Estabeliz decided to go up behind her husband while he was working at his computer one day. She put a 22 caliber Beretta pistol to his head and shot him at point-blank range. After this, she dismembered his body with a chainsaw, mixed the body parts into cement chunks, and buried him in the basement. She tried actually to burn the body before this, but failed, and subsequently she cleaned for days after this, certain that the police would come as someone must have heard something, but they didn't, and she got away with it for the time being. Two years later, Anestabelez had began seeing someone else, her ex-husband now buried in the basement. This guy was an ice cream salesman she'd met through work, and his name was Manfred Hintenberger. So all was well between the pair at first when they started dating, but on one November night in 2010, they had a drunken stoush. This centred on Esther Belez's belief that Manfred was having an affair. Not that she had any proof of that, but she certainly believed it. At one stage during the evening, she went to confront Manfred about the affair but discovered he'd passed out drunk as a skunk on the bed. She heard him snoring, saw him facing the wall, and became enraged. So much so that she grabbed her gun from beneath the mattress, the same Beretta pistol she'd used to kill Holger two years earlier, and she shot Manfred several times in the back of his head. The following morning, after a cup of coffee, because, let's face it, who can operate without that, 
She dismembered Manfred in the same manner she'd done with Holger and placed his body in a freezer also. She'd also filled up some small garden containers with body parts and upon burying them under the cement in the basement, placed air fresheners around to mask the odour. After this, Estabaliz went and got her nails done, as you do. Clearly wielding the chainsaw and handling the cement had taken the ends off her French tips. One strange thing about all of this, as if it's not bizarre enough already, Estabaliz had already taken shooting lessons and concrete mixing lessons at her local hardware store after killing Holger, before killing Manfred, so that's quite telling right there. Whatever she got out of the first murder, she planned deep down to kill again at some point. It was around six months later after killing Manfred that the incident with the plumbers would occur and Estabales would flee to Italy where she was captured and extradited to stand trial for the murders. They call her the ice killer. This 34-year-old Spanish-Mexican woman faces between 20 years and life in prison. On the opening day of her trial in Vienna, Estivaliz Caranza pleaded guilty to killing her ex-husband and her ex-boyfriend, whose bodies she chopped up and hid in the basement of an ice cream shop she owned in Vienna. The bodies were found in June 2011. She shot her then ex-husband in 2008, dismembered his body, froze it, and then sealed it in cement in the basement. Two years later, she did the same with her boyfriend after a stormy relationship. She acknowledged later that there might have been a better way to break up with him. The court's psychological study concluded that Carranza is accountable and could be tried and convicted. But it also warned of a pathological personality disorder and that there was a good chance she would kill again. The prosecution wants her sent to a prison for the criminally deranged, while the defense will base its case on her psychological problems. The sentence will be announced on Thursday or Friday of this week. When Estebelez was arrested, it turned out that she was pregnant with the child of a third man. They would later marry in prison. He ended up on the inside too, apparently. It was said that falling pregnant was everything that Estebelez always wanted. But after having the child, obviously she couldn't keep him while awaiting trial in jail. So he was put into the custody of his grandparents and then his father, I'm guessing once he got out of jail. Estabaliz was diagnosed as having serious mental and psychological abnormalities, but still fit to stand trial. It was also said by a psychologist that she stood a one in three chance of murdering again if she was set free. That wouldn't be on the cards for the Ice Lady, as she's called in Austria and Germany. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. A women's prison, however, wasn't enough to secure Estabelez, apparently. Her violence was too much for the women's facilities to handle, so she was transferred to a male prison in Aston, Upper Austria. I read some things about her being housed in a psychiatric hospital, so perhaps this prison has that facility. But whatever the case, she's there now, the only female alongside 91 other men. I'm assuming she's kept separate based on her history. She has also written a memoir in prison entitled My Two Lives, The True Story of the Ice Lady. A journalist named Martina Prewayne wrote it with her. The proceeds from the book sales go to her son and apparently she's studying further on the inside in the field of business. But that's it, Chloe. That's the heinous tale of Estabiliz Carranza, the Ice Lady, and the conclusion of our episode on the ice cream murders. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I feel like we definitely should have done a content warning at the start that 
even though this is about ice cream, we're going to destroy the concept of <laughs> nourishing, comforting food that everyone has and now every time they eat it, they'll think of murder. But that's that aside. Um, I guess I, what I keep thinking is that money and pride do some strange things to people and I think in all of these cases at some point that's what was at play, you know, whether it's a turf war, whether it was someone not getting paid or I really don't know what the last motive was, but it seems like, you know, those things of money, status, power just come into all of this. And yeah, no matter the field, I guess you could be a high powered lawyer. You could be, I don't know, doing, yeah, selling ice creams out of a corner shop or an ice cream van and still be involved with some pretty horrendous things. It's quite sobering to think that it doesn't really matter where you are in society, that these dynamics still happen. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to my Harry Potter reference earlier, here's a fun little Harry Potter fact for you all relating to ice cream. Rupert Grint, known for his role as Ron Weasley in the Harry Potter movies, he actually bought a 1974 Mr. Whippy Bedford van to fulfil his childhood ambition of becoming an ice cream man. Apparently Grint rolls into local villages where he lives and dishes out free ice creams and lollipops to kids. So, yeah, there's some good coming from ice cream, not all bad, and it can certainly turn bad, as we've seen in these uh, three tragic cases. It's it's easy to sort of tell these and get a bit caught up in the ice creaminess of it all. Obviously, they're smaller cases that, you know, probably wouldn't, um, you know, flesh out a full episode. But, you know, as we always say, these were real people, husbands, fathers, sons, and They lost their lives. Many lives were affected as a result of that, and that is always a a terribly sad thing. But uh, she was a dangerous piece of work, that ice lady. Uh, I think we can see she would have gone gone on to kill again hadn't she been caught. So, uh, But that's it from me. Nice one. Well, let's move on to happy thoughts. Um, You can go first because I forgot to write anything. (laughs) All right, well, you can work away on that while I explain that uh, I'm excited about uh, or happy, I suppose, about this little bit of sort of flickering light we've got at the end of the tunnel at the moment that, uh, you know, there might be some easing of restrictions soon for us here in uh, in Australia or in, in some some states have sort of eased, eased it a little bit, but in our home state anyway, hopefully coming up soon. So that would be great to be able to uh, see some family and friends again soon. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, well, mine is that um, it's TV related because I haven't been doing all that much at the moment other than working <laughs> doing the podcast, going for walks and watching TV or reading. Um, so, and eating, actually doing plenty of eating. Um, so mine's limited, but I've been watching this new show on Amazon called Upload. Um, and it's a really cool concept where it's set in, I don't know, 20 years from now, where when you die, your consciousness gets uploaded to this virtual reality. So there's like a resort with everything you could want, buffet breakfast and things. Um, and that's where your consciousness goes rather than dying. Um, it's written by the guy who made The American Office. So it's a comedy um, and it's it was really good. We've watched eight episodes, smashed out the season. Um, it's really nice to watch something like that where you don't have to think about the real world. Um, and I just love the humour from The Office. It's one of my favourite shows, so I think it's real funny. Yeah, excellent. Very good. And don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. 
For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. We uh, will have a Murder Lounge episode out now with some sneak previews for the next episode or episodes as well. Uh, We were hoping to get that out uh, sooner, but a little bit delayed with the two cases or the two episodes last week. So, And speaking of last week's episodes, Chloe, we just wanted to uh, uh, add a little clarifying statement here at the end uh, about that, specifically with a couple of things I said uh, at the beginning of my thoughts in relation to Gable's behaviour. Now, there's quite a bit of discussion on our Facebook group uh, on the case this week, which was great. It was all very respectful, which is, you know, I think one of the things we we love about our little group. Uh, what I intended to convey with respect to highlighting some of Gable's behaviours was that, you know, the, the media reported quite a bit on his diagnoses in the same breath as his alleged actions. And, you know, I don't agree with that. I don't think that has anything to do with his actions or should I say his alleged actions? I mean, you know, in it, it is a case he's ultimately been found uh, not guilty of. So uh, my intention in pointing out his history was that it helps us all to better understand him as a human being. But that's not just his diagnoses, but his previous legal troubles as well, uh, his Tinder conquest too. So but in reality, in the context, that's in the context of him and his life to that point. It doesn't, you know, in any way relate to his alleged actions or behaviours on the night of Warina's tragic death, which, again, you know, we stress, uh, have been judged by a jury of his peers to be reasonable. So in fairness to everyone, you know, we decided to go back and edit that statement out because in hindsight, as someone without lived experience of disability or diagnosis, you know, that comment I made might continue to be misinterpreted and and we never want that. Uh, Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you all again soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Joe was a well-known criminal defence attorney, having represented well-known Melbourne underworld identities including Francesco Mataferi, Rocco Arrico, Pascal Barbaro. Oh, fuck these names. Fuck. <laughs> Pascal Barbar- Barbaro. I almost want to say it with the accent. Francesco Mataferi. You I can't. If you don't do it all like that, you can't. No, you can't. Unless you're like, Arrico. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that one line. <laughs> And as we in the and as we in the clip mentioned, Joe was a well-known criminal defence attorney, having represented well-known Melbourne underworld identities, including Francesco Mataferi, Rocco Arrico, <laughs> Pascal Bab, Grandsire, Grandsire, Grandsire. This last case is going to get a whole lot more bitter and dark, kind of like one of those. Sh- <laughs> What's happened here? Okay. I don't know if I need to say any of that.
kind of like one of those shit flavors of ice cream, <laughs> those experimental <laughs> ones with a bunch of strange colors and nuts chopped up and mixed through it, usually heaps of it left over in the back right corner. I mean, some people really like those ice creams. I don't think you need to say that. Yeah, it's probably a bit. There'd be a grisly find far worse than any bog-clogged drain, and it was the remains of two dismembered men. <laughs> Sorry, bog-clogged <laughs> Sometimes I forget what I write. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in there, though, because it's funny. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 